Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. Well, I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune, and ND Insider. This is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. An Irish football game is finally in the books. Notre Dame shook off a slow start to beat Duke 27 to 13 on Saturday, but now we're quickly turning our attention to South Florida. USF will be making its return to South Bend for the first time since its memorable victory over Notre Dame in 2011. And Charlie Weiss Jr. will be making his return to the stadium where his dad coached the Irish for five seasons. But we're starting our podcast this week with a different guest with connections to both programs. And that's Devin Studstill, who played safety at Notre Dame for three seasons before finishing up his career as a graduate student at USF last season. Devin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Devin, I wanted to start just kind of your perspective of USF as a football program. What kind of potential does it have um, if things get going in the right direction? And what do you think may be missing that, that needs to happen for that to happen? Yeah, I think USF has a, has a great program and great talent, I would say. I would say the thing that we we missed we think that we lacked last year was a sense of a team and and more of a, a leadership based team. Um, I'm really excited this year for USF and their new coach Jeff Scott. I think he's going to give great things to the program with his winning culture and his winning pedigree. I feel like he can add a different aspect to the USF. They already have talent. It's about um, putting the pieces together. I think he's a guy that could do that for them. Devin, when you went looking for a place to land after you decided to transfer, what uh, what drew you to USF beyond what you just said there? And and also, were there other programs you strongly considered? Yeah, I considered a lot of programs. I think I had a lot of, of MAC schools and a lot of Texas Tech, different Division One programs. But with my situation, I had to go in there, I had to play, I had basically a six-month contract I was looking at. I had to come in there over the summer and play early and be able to play. Right? I didn't want to get into the numbers game. I didn't want to go in there to a crowded backfield. I wanted to go somewhere that had a spot open for me, that had a good program, and that had a great coach, great personal connection. And I ended up choosing Charlie Strong. He recruited me at the University of Texas coming out 2016. And I loved Texas, and I was about to go. And I only would go before Coach Strong. And the fact that, you know what I'm saying, he, he took a shot on me Three years down the road, I respected that and I respected him and his work. Um, coming from South Florida, he comes down there a lot. 
and his different uh, teams. He had Louisville and different teams. He always recruited Florida heavy and always had a great connection with Coach Strong. So that's why I ended up going to USF. When you made that transfer and were kind of settling into USF, how how challenging was it to sort of hit the ground running and be ready to go right away? And what would, what were kind of differences you noticed from Notre Dame what, that, that between the two programs? Man, transferring is a beast in itself, <laughs> I would say. You're taking a leap out on faith and you're leaving a program like Notre Dame that has it all together, right? They have everything you want from off the field and on the field. You're going and taking a chance on not even going Division One. You never know. Like, you never know what could happen or who needs what. So taking that step of that leap of faith and trusting yourself and and just listening, not listening to everybody. Everybody wants you to stay, you know what I'm saying? Oh, you can just graduate from Notre Dame, get two degrees from Notre Dame and just, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, you have to do what's best for you at the end of the day. And I would say the biggest difference from Notre Dame and different programs is that Notre Dame is first class, right? And it's not hype. It's first class all the way. Everything they do, they're going to take care of you, whether that's on the field, emotionally, different leaderships, different the brothers, the brotherhood, the coaching. It's, it's a step up. It just is what it is. And when you take that chance, you're, just, you're leaving all that and you're banking. You're putting all the chips on yourself. Devin, you started quite a few games as a true freshman, I think, the most games at safety since Bobby Taylor way back uh, <laughs> in the 90s. And and then there was a point where your playing time just started going down. And I read a quote from you where you said, you know, I was told that I couldn't play at this level. And I know that there was some coaching changes on the defense. Who Who told you you couldn't play at that level? And why didn't you believe it? And I think you always hear different doubters. And you always hear different coaches that don't have that same kind of belief that you have in yourself. And um, basically, my, my freshman year, I came in, I played early. I was very athletic and very talented from an instinctual level, and that allowed me to play early. But looking back on it, I probably shouldn't have been out there that early. You know what I'm saying? I got a wartime promotion, throwing the fire out there. And if I have it back, I will probably redshirt that year, you know, but – me being young, me being anxious, me being ready to go, I want it all. So I went out there and did everything I could. When the new coach came in, Coach Elko, my guy, <laughs> we have a love-hate relationship, mostly <laughs> hate, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, he, you know what I'm saying, it was, I was going through a lot. Um, my mother passed and my grades were bad and I felt real jaded by the program, right? And so he came in not knowing me and he didn't, we didn't get off on the right foot and so, that's how that thing went down. Um, but it is what it is at the end of the day, and I'm not taking the victim mindset. It's just is what it is. And, you know, looking back when I could do things better, you know what I'm saying, it allowed me to look in the mirror. And I looked in the mirror for a long time and said I could do certain things, put myself in a better spot. This is all my fault. So once I did that, I was able to take it for what it was, and I able to, you know what I'm saying, pursue my other dream at USF. Devin, when you ended up playing at USF and then were pursuing a pro career and – uh, fell short of that this this off season. What did you learn about yourself through that process, and what did you learn about how all that works and how complicated it is to try and get get into the NFL? Yeah, yeah. I think what I learned from that process, I think it's it's so much. It's it's all about the right timing, the right representation, 
being the right person, right? And so my past experience in Notre Dame, I watched myself, you know what I'm saying, grind, grind, grind. And, you know, I didn't come out there with the same kind of results I thought I was grinding for. And so the same thing happened with the NFL where I didn't get my opportunity. And it is what it is. It happens. But at the end of the day, I cut on that film. And I'm proud of what I did. I did everything I could do. And that's all that matters. Devin, what are you doing now and where are you kind of where's home now? Yeah, yeah. So I'm in West Palm Beach, Florida. I'm doing online school at the University of South Florida, finishing up my degree. So I'm in school and I'm working and I'm doing still training. So I'm doing all three of those things. What what are you uh, pursuing your degree in there at South Florida? Yeah, yeah. I'm doing entrepreneurship and applied technology right now. Uh, one more semester. This is my last semester. So I have an MS by the next time, by December, I have an MS. So I'm thankful for that opportunity and just being able to stick through it because I wasn't going to take those classes when I was going through my trial process, but listening to my family and just taking in some different counsel and just staying with the school, I would just say for anybody listening to this podcast as an athlete, stay in school. You know, I came out thinking I was all world and about to be straight to the NFL and my life's going to be great, right? But things happen. So school is, is a great umbrella to fall back on. Well, I think Sean Crawford has a chance to stay in school forever. <laughs> 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 Devin, I, I saw uh, you had posted on Instagram something about city uh, side mobile suites. It looked like you were doing some work with that. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, yeah. So it's a nonprofit community initiative that me and my father started. And basically, long story short, is that it's basically a mobile food truck that we allow food aspiring food vendors to get, you know what I'm saying, started and get a feel for what it is to have an actual food truck without having those high costs. And I think with COVID-19, things happen. You want to go contactless and be able to have drive-throughs. And those restaurants that may make a transition is the one that's surviving right now. Um, so we wanted to help bridge that gap. Even if you're an existing restaurant needing some more capital, we'll work with you and, and put your spot in a, in a mobile suite. And we'll work with different aspiring food vendors. And it's all nonprofit. We're not looking for any money. We're, all our money's through grants and sponsorships. So we're looking just to help the community. So where will you watch the game, and who will you be rooting for Saturday? <laughs> Man, I'm rooting for the guys. I'm not rooting for the team. I'm rooting for all the guys that I play with. I think you guys should take a good look at KJ Sales and Mike Hampton in the back for USF. And I'm excited to see Sean Crawford and Kyle go out there and do that work at safety. So And, and Wu and all of the fast linebackers that NED has. I'm really excited about their third down defense this year. I think people kind of sweep it under the rug about they had a slow start, but 13 points with an ACC team, that's a good day. That's a good day at the office for a defense. And I think USF with Coach Scott, um, with their running attack they had at Citadel, I think is going to be something to watch, um, where they could get into it from the quarterback perspective, from different running back, different gadget backs. I think um, Johnny, you know, he's number one right now. He's number 20 last year, but it's going to be a great matchup. I'm excited to see the guys go out there and ball. Devin, I'm fascinated by Sean playing safety this year as such a short guy. Um, obviously, you know plenty about playing safety. Why do you think he's able to do that despite his maybe size disadvantage? Man, Sean can cover every spot on the field. And the way he, he approaches the game, uh, me and Sean, we, we got real close um, when he was hurt and I was, you know what I'm saying, not playing. I was going through what I was going through. Um, and he could cover any spot on the field. and He'll come down and bite you too. 
sound tackler, um, plays six foot three, right? He always going to – he covered the slot, covered the tight end, covered the corner. You know what I'm saying? And that safety need to be able to cover that slot. And he's going to be the best slot corner option you have on any team. So him – and be able to tackle – he can tackle in space and be able to roam free. So Sean's a great field at safety. When I seen him with the safety, I got nearly got excited because I know he's going to shine. He brings a, a veteran perspective too. He's – you know what I'm saying? Six years, seven years. <laughs> he brings he brings a lot of experience to the backfield. Devin, you were um, you went through the experience of having a coordinator, your coordinator, fired during a season. <sighs> I'm wondering what that experience was like for you. Man, I feel bad. I feel bad for him because I feel like it was my fault a little bit. <laughs> but I think um, that experience, I think it was just – it's real, it's real humbling because you, you kind of realize in the college system that um, all it takes is a person to believe in you, right? And so when that person left for me, you know what I'm saying, I got immediately thrown in the shuffle and, you know what I'm saying, I did certain things that I thought could show my ability, but never got that, never got that trust. And that trust goes a long way. And um, Van Gorder was a great dude and, you know, I just wish him the best. How difficult was that to sort of process where I think certainly the defense went on to have more success after Van Gorder was fired and then in mm -hmm. future seasons with Coach Elko. Um, mm -hmm. But then for you, it kind of went the reverse direction where you're like, well, this isn't working out for me. How do you – how did you deal with that? I mean, battling sort of the personal and the team at the same time. Oh, um, it wasn't even – I wasn't even – I wouldn't say my personal experience detracted from the team at all. I think me, me being put in that position, all I want to do is show my worth. And so I did that every day in practice, and I cheered on my guys. Mm -hmm. That 12-0 year, our, our team chemistry was so great. Everybody wanted to do their part. And what I did was, even though I was trying to prove my worth from a starting position, you got the best out of me every day. And so the guys in front of me knew they had to bring their best. And I think, yeah, every guy's – I think Coach – Coach Lee said, when the totem bone stretches horizontal and everybody's working to, to get better, you have something special. I think that's what happened at 12 and no year. Everybody was just working, trying to prove their work, trying to get on the field. Because you got on the field, you're going to do your thing. Devin, you mentioned some tough times you went through. And I give you a lot of credit for being able to open up and write a letter to my best friend about your mom. What, how, what kind of pushed you to want to be open about that experience with everybody? Man, uh, Notre Dame did an excellent, a great job of when, when I was going through, I was going through, they gave me different resources, different therapists. They gave me three different resources, and I used all three of them, one for football, one for life, one for my emotions, and I just used all of them. I talked to them, I talked to them, I talked to them, and I was able to get a good sense of myself that I never really had before. You know, I thought my identity was just playing football. And that, that experience, me losing my mother, really made me, made me realize that, hey, I'm, I'm much more than football and that this thing could end faster than it started, right? And so what I did was I just put all my feelings on pen and pad and I did it and I just wrote it. And after I wrote it, I didn't even want to share it until um, the social media manager, Katie Meyer, she seen it and she's like, you should, just, you should, we should publish this. Like, your letter is great. It's well, well written. And I said, just go ahead and just make it as raw as possible, raw as you can. But as long as my words aren't twisted, go ahead and drop it. And I don't, I don't care. Whoever can grow from it can grow from it. 
I'm curious, not really the same thing, but sort of in that vein, how Notre Dame has embraced its its uh, athletes' voices in the the uh, movement for racial justice um, this this year. What has it been like to see how Notre Dame has handled that and sort of amplified the voices of the black players in this program right now? I think they're doing a great job. I think that's all you can do is try to understand. Um, everybody's experience is different, and you can't knock everybody for not having your same experience, but we should all come to the table and be able to learn from each other. And I think what Notre Dame is doing is, is broadcasting their players' voices, for better or for worse, and getting a lot of different feedback, and they're standing true to it. Um, they're getting a lot of pushback on Twitter, different comments from the fans, and it's just like I love Notre Dame for just pushing those voices out because the players' voices matter. Devin, I'm old enough to remember your dad playing, and I guarantee you he was every bit as good as he says he is. Uh, he really was. Uh, wonder what he's up to these days, and besides the the partnership that you guys have. Mm-hmm. He's still doing his thing as far as uh, uh, working and just being my father, and that's enough for me. And so he's down here. I'm, I'm really looking at him now. He's around the corner, but good dude, good dude. Devin, last one for me. As part of Notre Dame agreeing to play USF this year, the teams also agreed to play at each other's homes again in future seasons. Not years attached yet, but what does it mean? What do you think it means for USF to be able to host Notre Dame for a home football game somewhere down the line? I think it's great for the program. I think uh, you will be surprised at how well the talent matches up from the AAC to Notre Dame. I think their speed matches up a lot. Um, I think that the, the concepts and the coaching matches up, I think it will be a great matchup going further and going on. Now it's time I think for it's place great for bets. for USF to have that exposure and to be on prime time and to be able to show their thing and great for Notre Dame as well to get some good competition. Devin, once we get past this COVID thing, would you like to get back up to the Notre Dame campus or maybe even to a game at some point? Yes, yes. I want to get up there this year. The sooner the better, but everything that's happened with the fans, and I know I have to wait, but I'm excited. I would definitely come to this game. I would definitely fly to South Bend and, and catch the game with some of the guys, some of the NFL guys coming back. Because um, that's how close we are. That's how tight we are. I have no ill will towards the program. I, I love you there. All right, Devin. Well, that's all we have for you. I appreciate you taking time uh, to talk to us this week, and uh, Enjoy the game on Saturday. Try not to be too conflicted. <laughs> I will do. All right. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame USF. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under 125 rushing yards for USF. Well, you know, they had a lot of rushing yards uh, last week against Citadel, which I'm not sure is a great indicator of what they would do against Notre Dame. Um, you know, last year they weren't a bad rushing team. That was the thing that they did best on offense. They averaged about 161. But I'm still going to go under. I think Notre Dame's rush defense is going to be pretty good, and I think they're going to have a really good game plan. I think they're gonna, we're going to see a lot of Sean Crawford down in the box in an eight-man front. So I think it's going to be really tough for USF to run as much as they did against Citadel. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I uh, Devin spoke to how good their backfield has the potential to be this year. Um, I'm not sure that it, that'll necessarily show itself against Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame 
showed against Duke that it can stop the run. I, I'm a little maybe slightly concerned slash intrigued how it will look if Kyle Hamilton doesn't play, which in my opinion, he probably shouldn't play. I don't know that it's necessary for him to play against USF. Um, if he, if there's any question of how healthy he is. Um, and so do you feel as comfortable with playing Sean down in the box? If you, if you're one deep safety is DJ Brown, I'm sure you'd feel a lot more comfortable with Kyle Hamilton being that guy. Um, but I do think that, uh, Notre Dame should be able to do a good job. And just the, the depth on the defensive line that Notre Dame has, they, they had like 11 guys in, in within the first series or two um, on the defensive line. So they're, they're not afraid to use all those guys, and everyone um, showed themselves pretty well against Duke. So I imagine they will do the same this weekend. Next one is over under 16 and a half completions for Ian Book. You know, when you go back and you look at his completions in the games last year, I expected more games of him having 20 or more. Right. And he really didn't have many. He had 29 against Georgia. He had 29 against Virginia Tech, a 26 uh, late in the season, and then a 20 in the bowl game. A lot of times he was in the teens. Um, but having said that, I think Notre Dame is going to want to work on the chemistry between the receivers and Ian Book, even though I think this is going to be a Brendan Clark game at some point. I think I think Notre it's going to go above just because Notre Dame is going to want to work on that passing game. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I I'm going to go under um, some of those games where you would think. Uh, well, he certainly had the stats to to go, but he didn't necessarily have uh, the high completions numbers. The games against like New Mexico and Bowling Green, where uh, his so many of his completions went for touchdowns, he didn't need to throw that many more more passes. Uh, I think he had 15 against New Mexico and 16 against Bowling Green completions. Um, so I'm going to go under, think that um, he'll be able to be efficient against USF and um, will be, and so they won't need to pass the ball a lot. Um, and I don't necessarily anticipate USF being able to put up a ton of resistance to, to, to force Ian into having to throw the ball um, a, a lot. So I will go under 16 and a half. Next one. Over under six and a half touches for Braden Lindsay. Well, I think one touch would at least get the people off the ledge that were on the ledge last week when he didn't play. And I don't blame them for not feeling comfortable about that just based on the lack of information at different points. Uh, I'm going to go under. I, I think they want to get him involved. I just think there's just so many different options that are going to get used. I don't, I don't think he is necessarily a go-to guy at this point in his career, especially after not playing last week. Yeah. I'm going to go with over maybe the uh, sending the over under on touches is a good luck sign because we put one on Kyron Williams last week and he surpassed the, the over for the touches. Uh, so I, I'm going to go over he, his career high uh, of touches is only six. He had six against Stanford last season. Um, so six and a half would be more usage than he's had in his Notre Dame career, but I think they want to put him to work. I think the the wide receiver group showed that they need him. Um, and so I think uh, – and I would imagine Ian Book has good chemistry and has some trust in Braden Lindsay. Um, so I, I think they're going to find ways to get him involved if he does play, um, which it seems like he should. Uh, so I will go over. Next one is over under four and a half sacks for ND's defense. Well – 
South Florida last year was one of the worst teams at protecting its quarterback. They were 126th, uh, and they allowed almost four sacks a game. And there's a few other teams on the schedule this year that were in kind of the same boat as them. Yeah. I just think with um, South Florida probably playing from behind a lot of the time and uh, Notre Dame just being able to rotate so many fresh bodies in that they're going to end up with over – yeah, I'm going to go over as well. I don't think USF probably doesn't want to have to throw as much as they'll probably need to against against Notre Dame. But like we mentioned earlier, we think that the rushing defense will do do a good job for Notre Dame, um, and that will probably force USF to throw more than it's comfortable with. And uh, I just think Notre Dame has waves of defensive linemen that can rush the passer right now, um, and so I think they're going to be able to get after uh, uh, after the USF uh, offense and. Um, even bring guys like, obviously, Jeremiah Usu-Kormo off the edge, which they did a number of times against Duke. Um, so they're, they're going to throw all kinds of different shapes and sizes at USF's front um, and, and try to confuse them and overwhelm them. Next one, which will be mentioned first on the USA Network broadcast, Charlie Weiss Jr. or the 2011 game? And we should mention that the announcers, some of the announcers are going to be the same. We'll get Tony Dungy and Jack Collinsworth. We'll get Mike Tarico. We'll get Paul Burmeister, who normally does the radio. Uh, but I think between those three people, Charlie Jr. is going to come up first. Uh, that's really the more relevant storyline here. And uh, I had a chance to talk to Charlie Jr. And I'll tell you what, his parents have to be very proud of the guy that he's become. Pretty impressive young man. Yeah, I'm going to go with Charlie Jr. as well. I, I think – um, that's a natural fit. Although the visuals that they may have available to them from all the, the rain and all the stuff that happened in the 2011 game will probably be featured pretty early on. Um, but I, I do think uh, if I had to bet, which I'm making us do, uh, I would say Charlie West Jr. will be mentioned first. And lastly for us is our final score prediction. You know, I think South Florida is going to be an improved team. And for some of the reasons that Devin Studd still mentioned that there probably is better leadership uh, this year. And I think Charlie Jr. is going to come up with a really good game plan. But I just don't think they have the horses. I think Notre Dame learned a lot from last week, and I'm predicting Notre Dame 42-10. to 10. Well, we're very close because I have Notre Dame 41-10. to 10. <laughs> So we're going to have to see if they can split the difference between us. <laughs> uh, uh, we uh, are, are on the same page there, so we both see a lopsided victory, and uh, maybe uh, we'll see who who's closer if it goes over or under for us. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First question I have for us is from Adam Luce at ACO Luce. Am I right to be concerned with the wide receiver position? Well, you're right to be concerned about whatever you want to. <laughs> uh, but uh, I would say not long-term. I think long-term there's plenty of talent, and I think these chemistry issues are going to iron out, you know, Again, it's hard for us to be definitive in our reporting because we weren't at the practices, but what we had heard were 
at times that that was a position group that was, that was affected by quarantine. Um, but I just look at all the different people that could be coming in the future. I think at some point you're going to get Kevin Austin back and then you're going to have a go-to wide receiver. And we're probably looking at the Florida state game, October 10th. I also think Jordan Johnson is an interesting option. I think at some point he's got to get on the field and you got to see what he can do. Um, so again, long-term, I do not think it's a concern, maybe short term a little bit, but I don't think, USF, they had Devin Studd still, then they'd have to worry. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, as long as you realize that the concern shouldn't necessarily be long-term, then I think it's okay to be concerned with wide receivers right now. Um, I, they played most of the Duke game without, in my opinion, their top three receivers with Kevin Austin Jr., uh, Ben Skoranek, and Braden Lindsey. Um, I expected Ben Skoranek to do more before he got hurt, but that yeah. didn't happen. Um, and, and, and you're stuck playing Javon McKinley, who is a good blocker and has played well against non-Power 5 teams, but um, we're still waiting to see him show up in uh, a big moment against a Power 5 team. So maybe maybe this will be the week Javon McKinley has another big week <laughs> against a, a group of five team. But um, I, I've always liked Joe Wilkins, um, but I, don't, I didn't expect him to be a number one receiver uh, at any point this season. Um, so I, I, I don't think that's an ideal situation for Notre Dame. Um, so they, they have some, some things to work out, um, and it's not, surpri- it's not terribly surprising that after everything that this offseason has been, um, if you're going to be down a, a couple receivers, that it might not look as good as you want it to. Um, but certainly you hope it, it improves as the season goes on. Next question is from Irish Zibby. Do you think Joe Wilkins will see, more t- or will see some more snaps going forward after looking impressive against Duke? I do, uh, at least this week. Um, he's listed as the number two option at both the outside receiver positions. Um, you know, you earn trust by what you do in a game. And Joe has been a guy that I thought, if he's not going to play wide receiver, move him back to cornerback. That's what he was recruited as. Right. Uh, so the fact that he got in, he got some confidence. You know, I think he can build on that this week. But again, at some point, Skoranek's going to come back. Austin's going to come. Jordan Johnson's going to come or get an opportunity, I would think. And then there's going to be more competition. So he's got to make his claim now so that he doesn't get caught in that numbers game. Yeah, um, you've mentioned Jordan Johnson a couple times here, so I'll chime in and say that I did ask Brian Kelly specifically about him yesterday, and Brian's answer was that, um, Jordan Johnson still has some things to do kind of off the field as to be a complete student athlete before they're, before he's ready to contribute. And he mentioned traits. Um, so Jordan's just not quite ready yet. Um, they're hopeful that it, that the light will turn on there. Um, but I think uh, they're, they're, they're needing to be patient. But he also said later in the press conference that they're going to need a wide receiver to sort of elevate their game and be ready to play because of the, the number situation at right, wide receiver right now. So, whether that's Jordan Johnson or Xavier Watts, the opportunity should be there for them. Um, so, uh, but back to Wilkins, yes, I do think he'll see more snaps moving forward, especially this week. Um, and if he can continue to play like he did against Duke, I think it's reasonable to, to say that he can work his, keep himself in the rotation and not be sort of an afterthought as he has been in previous seasons. 
Next question is from Josh Melton at Joshua Melton. How much did the loss of Austin, Skoranek, and Lindsay, et cetera, hurt book, Book's performance, or would you chalk it up mostly to rust? Well, it didn't help because I think those – I mean, Ben Skoranek is probably the guy he threw to the most in the past six months. You know, Ben went out and quarantined with the Book family in California. Um, you know, Austin was – being counted on as the kind of go-to guy. So I think it had something to do with it, but I also think, you know, book had some things to do with his performance. You know, he is continues to be thrown. And and I think a lot of quarterbacks would be, but he continues to be thrown when a team shows him a look that he didn't see during the week on film. It's harder, harder for him to adapt than maybe some other quarterbacks you remember the Pitt game from a couple years ago where they had the real close call. Um, Pitt threw a whole bunch of different looks at him that he hadn't seen, and it really was difficult for him to kind of find a comfort level. I think the other thing about Ian was he missed, as Brian Kelly called it, he missed some layups. There were some yeah. easy passes that he just missed the mark on. So I can't say it's all – all missing those other receivers that Ian book has room to improve even without those guys. Yeah. The, the, the loss of those receivers in that game certainly made an impact um, and, and probably impacted the types of throws he was willing to make. We didn't see him throw the football downfield very much at all. I think I charted only two throws that uh, were thrown to actual targets that went 20 yards beyond, beyond below the line of scrimmage. Um, so that's not what, you would hope to see from a third-year starting quarterback. You'd like to see him have more confidence to throw the ball down the field. Um, but he rushed some throws, the high throws. Those are on book. There's not really a good excuse for for some of those instances. Um, same with sort of the the dancing in the pocket where there's not when there's pressure maybe on the outside and there's plenty of room to step up. He needs to be able to step up, and there's not really a, a reason that Notre Dame should. Uh, expect him to still be kind of stuck in that spot as a quarterback. So um, we'll see if it lingers or if it was maybe just a bad day. I'm willing to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt um, coming off of this, this crazy off season. But uh, I think we should expect to see better performances from Ian book moving forward. Next question is from Marie Biafor at Biafor underscore Marie. Why the apprehension about throwing the occasional deep ball early in a game? Even if, even if incomplete, the seed is planted in the defense's mind and loading the box every play becomes less comfortable. You might even complete it and spark the offense. Well, I'll tell you what. I'd, I'd be If Marie's listening, I'd be interested to see if you just butchered her last name because if she's Italian, it's probably Biafore. Yeah, I, I considered that, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> well, I may be wrong. She may she may say, boy, that Tyler knew what he was doing. <laughs> and, and Marie has a – I think would be a good offensive coordinator for somebody because she's in my chats a lot of times, asked some of the best questions. But um, in this particular instance, I think if you were trying to live on the deep ball or, or really make a habit of it, you were playing into Duke's hands. That's the one thing defensively that they're kind of good at. They have five defensive backs. They play a four-two-five pretty experienced group back there and they have two of the better defensive ends Notre Dame's going to see this year in terms of pass rushers. So yeah. I'm not sure that the game set up real well for, 
for Notre Dame to be able to do that. I also think Duke wanted Notre Dame to throw the ball. They did not want Notre Dame to be able to run the ball effectively. They felt like their best chance was Notre Dame trying to connect with inexperienced receivers. But, you know, I think there's going to have to be times where Notre Dame is comfortable in games taking shots down the field. And, you know, I think Braden Lindsay and Kevin Austin, either or, make that a better proposition than who was on the field last week. Yeah, I think uh, I was a little bit surprised by that, and especially with how much they were sort of establishing the run. Even if when it wasn't successful, you would think that that would open up some more opportunities for some play fakes, for some downfield throws. Um, but the first time they really did that was the first play of the fourth quarter where they did a play fake and threw, tried to throw deep to Lawrence Keyes, and it wasn't complete. Um, so that's pretty late in the game to, to try that and put that in the defense's mind. Uh Maybe there were some other opportunities where they wanted to do that and Ian didn't see an opening and, and, and checked it down. Um, so maybe that had something to do with it. and Maybe it wasn't specific to the play calling. Um, but I also think it probably comes back to the lack of a tr- the trust in the receivers too. If you're um, throwing a deep ball is, is, is a potential of throwing more interceptions. And we saw there was one, it wasn't really, wouldn't quite a deep ball, but he threw it down the field. Um, it was picked off, but it was called back because the Duke had jumped off sides. I'm not sure if Ian had even seen that offsides penalty, so I'm not sure if he was being intentionally careless or not. But um, I think that uh, Notre Dame needs to find ways to do that more often, um, and I would anticipate that they will um, and, and, and consider that this was probably be an aberration. Next question is from uh, at NDJeff06. Why was Brian Kelly quick to pull quarterbacks in the past but doesn't do the same to settle Ian Book down? It seems with Book that he doesn't ever want to pull him no matter what he has done, which seems very anti-BK prior to uh, Book taking over the quarterback spot. Well, I think a lot of that dynamic, first of all, I'm not a big fan of pulling your starting quarterback to settle him down. I I think you have to have other ways to do that, especially when he's a third-year starter. Uh, There are certain expectations you have of him. And I think a big reason why maybe Book hasn't been sat down is because whoever the number two quarterback happens to be, and they have maybe not been happy with the experience level of the number two quarterback. You know, when when Tommy Reese and Dane Crisp were kind of going back and forth, um, certainly in 2011, Tommy had four starts under his belt and had won all four of those games. So I think they were a little bit closer together. Also, when Everett was starting Golson in 2012, you know, Reese was a former starting quarterback at that point. It had, I think, 17 starts. So he was a good kind of reliever to come in. So I I just don't think that it makes sense. I, I think you have to find other ways to get Ian to settle down during a game than pulling him out. I, I think that probably is the worst thing you could do at this point um, where he's looking over his shoulder and he's got a guy with two mop-up games on his resume and putting him in. Yeah, I think it's just a matter that the confidence in Book is higher and significantly higher than the confidence in any of the guys that they've had backing him up. Um, so that's why they've given him a, a long leash. And also, I think 
I would have to go back to look at it more specifically, but I imagine and I believe that those instances where quarterbacks were being pulled, those guys were turning the ball over, which isn't something that Ian Book does at a very high rate. Um, so Book hasn't necessarily cost Notre Dame many games. He, he certainly hasn't played well in all of his games, but he's not given the, the, given the other team free possessions and stuff like that. So that's the biggest thing I think that, that um, angers coaches is when they're doing stuff like that that gives them more of a want to kind of pull, pull the trigger on, on putting someone else in. But I, I still don't think that they have much confidence um, in a in a starter on a regular basis in Phil Dracovic last season and, and Brendan Clark right now. So um, I don't, I don't think that we will see that moving forward. And that's probably the, the, the most logical explanation for why. Next question is from Kevin Calabria at Kevin Calabria one. Do you think Chris Tyree can run some fly patterns? I do. I think there's other ways to get him deep too. Um, when he told me when he first started out in high school, they had so many running backs at his high school that his first position was slot receiver. So he learned how to play that. I mean, certainly you can see the speed there that he could just run past some cornerbacks and so forth. And if he gets matched up with a linebacker or a safety, good night. Uh, so I think they'll figure out ways to get him the ball in the passing game. He he's, I think they have confidence in him doing that. And I think he has confidence in himself doing that. Yeah. I, I, I would predict that it would be maybe something they would do more down the line than right away with Chris Tyree, um, keeping his focus right now on the running game, especially um, if they're going to keep, keep him involved in the running game. Um, it seems like they want to have him as part of the regular rotation. Um, he was basically the number two back, I would say, um, this past game with Jafar Armstrong as the number three. Now, maybe that switches if they get more comfortable with where Jafar is at um, and use Jafar more. But I, I think as long as he's like the number two running back, I don't know that they're going to add too much more to his plate as a freshman um, while he's also being a kick returner as well. So I don't know that that's something they want to um, focus too much time on, but I think that he could certainly beat plenty of guys deep if given the opportunity. Next one is from Tim at Dolman Golder. Over under number of questions about Ian Book's subpar performance. From who? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think he was guessing how many of the questions were coming uh, that we would get asked uh, – for the podcast, and I would say we were we got fewer questions. We have talked about Ian Book, but there wasn't there weren't a lot of Ian Book questions. Um, okay. that, that I was confused by the question because I thought, well, we know what the questions are, so I just <laughs> have to count. <laughs> so I, I think uh, certainly I received plenty of book comments during Twitter. Um, I do think I, I believe I mentioned earlier that he's so, sort of earned the benefit of the doubt. Um, to have a game like this, um, I, I think there's reason to be concerned if it continues. But um, I think uh, it does. I mean, every time Notre Dame doesn't have a great first quarter, everyone is going to freak out. No matter what has happened, they could have just won the national championship last year. And I promise you, if the first quarter went the way it went against Duke, people would be freaking out. And you know what? Usually, I would be like, "Oh, come on!" I'll tell you what. I felt the most normal I felt in six months when that happened on Saturday, I was like, <laughs> I'm in my comfort zone, baby. I'm back. <laughs> That's back. 
and it, and it felt good. So thank you for all the overreactions to everyone and the regular reactions. <laughs> yeah, it, did. it was a kind of return to form for us all. Next question is another one from at NDJeff06. Do you think this is a do or die year for Jeff Quinn as the offensive line coach? I feel like they have taken a step back each year under Quinn. This in turn hurts Book, who tends to get happy feet at times. Okay, so if you're asking the question to Brian Kelly, you would want to leave off the last two parts of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because he would get stuck on that, and that's kind of what I got stuck on trying to debate you on those points. But I'm going to stick with the question. I don't, I don't want to say it's a do-or-die year. I do think it's a defining year for Jeff Quinn. And I know that, um, you know, I did a story with Aaron Taylor uh, in the preseason, and I value Aaron's uh, expertise at offensive line play over anybody but Harry Heastan. And Aaron is pretty high on what he thinks Jeff Quinn can accomplish. I think he's also recruited very well. Um, so I, I think do or die might be the wrong phrase, but I think if he had a bad year on the field, I think you would start to see his it start to chip into his recruiting and maybe chip into Brian Kelly's confidence. But, I, you know, the thing about it is Notre Dame's offensive line gets better grades from people that analyze film than it does from the fans. And there's a big gap. You know, I think Liam Eichenberg graded out as the highest, the best offensive lineman in all of college football last weekend by Pro Football Focus. And they had a couple of linemen. They were the offensive line of the week by PFF. And, you know, last year, pass protection, they were number two for the season. Now, they did not do well in short yardage run situations. But again, they're doing a new blocking scheme. I do think over the balance of the year, this, the chemistry between Jeff Quinn and Tommy Reese is going to pay off big time for Jeff Quinn. Yeah, I think kind of what you were getting to about focus, trying not to focus on the, the last two sentences that he said there. To me, the, the happy feet for Book, like the, those aren't the offensive line's fault because they are protecting him well uh, pretty consistently. Um, so I, I don't think that the, that's related. Um, I, I think that some, some of it has to do with they see the people see the praise that uh, sites will give um, Notre Dame's offensive line. Like to me, when I saw that Jarrett Patterson and Aaron Banks, I believe this was the case, they were named first team preseason all ACC, I think by Pro Football Focus. I was a little surprised by that. Now, obviously, I'm not as familiar with all the offensive lines in the ACC, but those two did not have, in my opinion, great seasons last year. Um, they weren't terrible, but they weren't they weren't like, wow, those were all conference players, in my opinion. Um, so I think that's a little surprising. And I think I, I'd be curious to know, I, and I haven't done enough research on how they do all their grades, how much the grading system is skewed off of pass blocking versus run blocking. Um, I know for me, I, when I'm sort of – I, I don't call myself what I do grading, but when I kind of track pressures, I'm not doing the same thing when it comes to the run game because I'm not necessarily – sure what their assignments are, but I have a better understanding of, okay, if you're that guy's lined up in front of you and he beats you in a pass rush, that's your fault. Um, so I think that, that maybe that has something to do with it. When people see all this praise for the offensive line and they expect it to see a better unit, um, maybe that's the case. And I think, I think it's just offensive line play is something where you watch and you 
I think you tend to be down on your offensive line when things go wrong and you don't necessarily consider what other offensive lines look like other than yours because you don't, we don't watch them as, as, as intently as you do uh, the other teams that, that you watch. Um, so I think some people may have taken for granted how well Notre Dame's offensive lines were playing. And I think probably still do take it a little bit for granted. Now certainly there's room for improvement in those areas are have been well documented with the short yardage situations and some run blocking issues. But um, I, I think that um, to get to the question of whether this is a do or die year, I don't, if die means Jeff Quinn getting fired, I think it would have to be a, a bit of a disaster year for the offensive line for that to be the reality um, this season. Um, next question is from Frank Sarah at Frank Sarah three last week. We were right on the rushing total. So do you think Notre Dame will rush for over or for over 190 yards this week? And also are there, what are the chances of a defensive score? Well, I think uh, USF was not good at defending the run. And I think Notre Dame is going to show that they want to run the ball. I think they, they want to be balanced. So, so I'll say over 190. I'll, I'll, I think if I'm doing over and under there, the chances of a defensive score, I mean, I think they go down if Kyle Hamilton's not the game. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but – I mean, I wouldn't rule it out. I don't know how to put a percentage on that. Uh, but I think certainly Notre Dame was so good at forcing fumbles last year. They led the country in doing that. And their disruptiveness, you know, uh, certainly the way that they attack and pressure, I think, lends itself to maybe that happening more. So, I mean, I think – they have a better chance than South Florida does of scoring a defensive <laughs> touchdown. Although if you remember the 2011 South Florida game, <laughs> that was crazy. I mean, it was like a 99 yard fumble return uh, that changed the whole complexion of that game and changed the trajectory of Dane Chris career. Yeah. Uh, I have a very complicated formula for the defensive score that I can't share with you. Um, so I think it's a 26.8% chance of, of not being a defensive score. Uh, but kidding aside, I, I think – I don't know that it was very likely, but I, I do think that's a possibility. Um, as for the rushing yards, I do think Notre Dame will go over the 190 total. I think um, they found some things that they liked as the game progressed against Duke, and I think they will have a successful plan of attack against USF as well. Next question is from at Carroll one Has your confidence in the ability of Notre Dame to play all of its games this year during a pandemic – changed after game one will any game day protocols need protocols around Notre Dame need to be changed I don't know that game one is is the place that that made me and and necessarily Notre Dame I think what continues to make me confident about them getting at least most of their games in are scientific advances you know you look at the team's that are able to Arizona, I think right now on its campus has the daily antigen tests. And even though they're not playing their numbers flattened as soon as they started testing every day. And you look at the NFL, they are testing every day. Now I don't think they have the antigen tests, the cheap tests that are $5 a piece, but I think that's coming to college football here in the next month or two. And as that gets integrated, it's going to make it easier for teams to 
to be able to get through their schedules. The other thing I think helps is the two teams in the ACC that are kind of struggling with their testing. Uh, NC State and Virginia Tech aren't on the aren't on the schedule, so you dodge those two teams that have had some trouble getting their season started. Yeah, I think uh, so much of it is beyond Notre Dame's control because it could have nothing to do with Notre Dame. It could be all on whoever the opponent is that week and whoever, whatever happened with them. Um, but, but it's Notre Dame has done a good job um, of showing that it has control of um, its situation and preventing it from spreading. Certainly um, the fact that two players tested positive for COVID within the last week is worth monitoring to make sure that it, it that spread um, doesn't happen beyond those, those players. Um, but I, I, I tend to remain confident as well, as long as the testing remains um, in a good place and the, the, um, the testing systems are in place and they're accurate and there, there aren't complications in getting those results. Brian Kelly mentioned um, that they have access to daily testing now too. They're not necessarily testing daily, um, everyone surveillance style like they do three times a week. But if someone, if there's a reason that someone may have, come into contact with them. They're not as, as sure that they would necessarily be in contact trace ruled out, but um, would maybe um, need a test. They have the access to do that. So um, my confidence remains pretty high. I, I, as for the game day protocols, I don't know. I mean, I, I think at some point they're, they're hopeful to get maybe some fans in the stadium by the, the, the last game for the Syracuse game if possible. Um, but I don't know how that's going to change or what, what will be the marker for them to decide whether or not it's worth it. And if, if the, to me, it's a matter of hassle, and it just seems like it's going to be a lot of work to make it work, work beyond what they already have set up, and is it worth the, the maybe the money that they would make to, to do that? I don't know. I don't know what that answer is, um, but I think uh, just watching it, I wasn't at the game. Eric was at the game. I'll be at the game this weekend. I'm just watching it on TV. I thought it was a perfectly reasonable product. The, the fan situation was kind of goofy. Um, they kept complimenting the students for behaving, which I don't know what they thought the students were going to be doing. Like they'd be streaking and kissing each other or something like that. But they looked, they looked like they were just watching a game and they just had different kind of clumps throughout the stadium. So it wasn't, it was just very strange that they were very complimentary repeated throughout the, 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 the game. Um, so maybe there'll be less of those compliments on the broadcast, but um, I think uh, Notre Dame is in a good spot and, we all hope that it continues that way. Well, I will guarantee you that there was no kissing of each other in the press box. <laughs> all right. We have that on record. Uh, next one is from Chris Buckley at Topher 15. Tyler and Eric, why are schools claiming that it's a HIPAA violation to name the players who've tested positive for COVID, but reporting other injuries isn't considered a HIPAA violation? I don't know. I, I think whenever um, – Schools don't want to do something, they cite privacy laws, and sometimes they are citing them correctly and sometimes they're not. Yeah. I think the big reason why uh, schools don't want to do it with COVID is because there's kind of a stigma attached to having COVID, almost like you're irresponsible. Right. And so I think they just really want, to, they don't see the point of identifying who the players are and I think the players are comfortable with that. I think the media can live with that. I think we'd like a little bit more detail sometimes, like this past weekend where all of a sudden two players supposedly tested positive at some point. You know, was it after the game? It must have been 
you know, I went and watched the beginning of the NBC broadcast of both Jack Collinsworth and Tony Dungy said that, that Notre Dame's roster was COVID free going into the game. You know, we, that's, I think where our sourcing came from as well. So that part of it's confusing. I think you need to be transparent with your numbers, but I think from a personal standpoint, I think the schools are doing the right thing. Yeah, I, I'm not too upset about the not revealing who has it. It's it's t- it, they they come in like just tough tough spots if um, a player just all of a sudden isn't playing and you don't have a good excuse for it. Um, I don't know what they're supposed. Why to- people were guessing that with Braden Lindsay? Right, right, and uh, so it's it's just uh, it's tough to avoid. Um, I think it would be neat at some point if kids came out and talked about like say we get to talk to someone who had COVID and we wouldn't even necessarily know but they would just admit it to us and talk about what it was like. I think um, that would be interesting at some point. I don't know that that will ever happen. Um, at least maybe not during the season, maybe after the season or something like that when things kind of calm down. But um, I think uh, so now, I mean, Notre Dame's up to 14 people who have had the, have tested positive for COVID um, since June. So the, the numbers are getting uh, uh, not high, but obviously increasing. Um, so and I think just in general, coaches and schools are always going to try and hide some sort of information and coaches will always try to justify it as sort of some sort of competitive advantage. But I don't know. I, to me, I think most of the times that that's baloney and it doesn't really hold up to anything. Um, but I, I think uh, I don't, and I don't know that anyone's actually cited HIPAA specifically and whether or not that's, that is true or not. Um, at least I don't, no one's actually said HIPAA to me in any way, but um, I think, we sort of respect as long as they're giving us the numbers. I think that at least meets my standard enough that, that it seems like uh, they're being open enough with us of what's going on within the program. Uh, last one we have is from Brent Leonard at Bert two eight three four. If one current player were to replace Chadwick Bozeman as the Black Panther, who would it be? You know, there were just two people that kind of jumped out at me. Um, I mean, Dale and Hayes might be too big to fit the costume, but I do think he has the voice, yeah, the presence, um, and he kind of comes off as a superhero, although his stats need to get better for that. And then the other person has the stats, and I think the physique, and I think he would fit the costume, and that's Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I was, I kind of had the similar breakdown, and I had Dale and Hayes – he has he has the charisma to 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 be the Black Panther. Um, I had another answer for the physique, but I think I might like your answer better in terms of Jeremiah. But I went with Kevin Austin Jr. I think he would also uh, be a good candidate to be the Black Panther in terms of athletic ability. But I think Jeremiah, you probably beat me on that one. Uh, so I think that those those would be interesting to see. Certainly uh, sad to see that Chadwick Boseman recently passed away from cancer and. Um, sort of out of nowhere because he hadn't disclosed that publicly. And that was a, a real loss um, for people who liked uh, a lot of the movies that he'd been in beyond the Black Panther as well. All right. That's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, leave us a review or a rating. Tom Noy and Carter Carls will bring you some Notre Dame USF postgame reaction Sunday on the Pot of Gold Extra Point. Stick with ndinsider.com for your Notre Dame football coverage needs all season long.